My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. And as a result of that, I, uh, I lost heavily the second time around. And it was a big lesson, but I didn't understand what I'd done wrong. You know, that until years later when I realized that's what I did. I bought using my head, sorry, my heart uh, and, and not, not my head. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with one of Australia's leading property market analysts and author of two best-selling books, John Linderman. Renowned for his accurate predictions for the property market, he shares where we should be focusing our energy on and his invaluable insights into diversifying your portfolio. Having spent years studying the property market, Linneman has become known as a property investment analyst. Analyse the fundamentals of the property market over the last 15 years uh, professionally and come up with a number of uh, systematic approaches to how you can predict whether or not prices are likely to fall or rise in any given area. His predictions for the property market have been very accurate in the past and we'll talk more about that later on. But first, we find out about his life in Australia and how he spends his time. It's a combination of two things. One, one I do is uh, I prepare, uh, I do lots of presentations around Australia, so I'm constantly preparing information for those. And I also write for a number of uh, property investment magazines and newsletters, so I'm always um, you know, looking out for new angles and stories of information and interest to, to investors for those. So that's pretty much what I, what I do most of the time. In terms of research, how much time does that take up for you? Well, luckily, I, I have a team of researchers that I can rely on, so not as much as it used to. Um, you know, we've got about three people on our team who are full-time researchers and are looking at various markets and providing me with their findings. So it, uh, it probably takes you know, an hour or two a day, but uh, that's, that's quite uh, enough for me to get a good understanding of what's happening anyway. So basically, the rest of your time is spent analyzing the data and then preparing those reports to give into the market? Yeah, and, and also a lot of it is because of the presentations, uh, a lot of time is spent traveling and we use that time. Um, you know, I've written two books about the property market. I'm in the press writing another one and also researching markets by doing on-the-ground research. So if we're in a particular locality, We'll go and have a look at areas that have promise and, and report back on those. Mm, that, that's really exciting is you get to see things on the ground as well. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it is fun in, in some 
cases, you know, you can go to really exciting places that are great to visit, but in other cases, of course, you've got to go to areas that you'd rather not uh, visit at all, but it's all part of the, the research process. Linneman further describes the research process, which is based on three levels. The first is we look at the dynamics of any market, and by dynamics, I mean the causes of change, which are uh, usually it's um, high population growth, you know, people moving into an area, the availability or need for finance. So, you know, if, if they're first-time buyers, they need finance, but if they're retirees, obviously they don't need any at all. And then the actual state of the local market, is there a shortage or surplus of, of the types of properties that are in demand? So that's the, the first level. And the second level is then looking at the numbers, the um, the number of sales that are occurring, the number of properties listed for sale, how that's changing, rental vacancies and changes in asking prices. You know, there's all sorts of little tricks you can use to really find an area that's got a lot of imminent growth potential or not. And then the third level is to go and have a look, which, as I said, can can be fun or it can be uh, rather daunting. But uh, <laughs> that, that's they're the three levels of of, um, of research that we do. Moving on, Lindemann describes the theory behind his personal investment strategies over the years. Many years ago, I would have been uh, an investor who was looking for high growth. Um, I think that property investment is a journey and it's you need to start by leveraging as much as you can, buying properties in areas that have got high growth potential and leveraging off that growth. By that, I mean borrowing money at you know, say 5% and getting 20-30% return on that investment. But then as you go on in life, and I'm not uh, young anymore, there's not much point in doing that. So when you've got sufficient portfolio of properties, you switch them to high cash flow because that's where your income is going to come from. And if you still have growth, um, it's fine, but you're really only going to leave that to the kids or grandkids anyway. So, you know, cash flow is king when, when you're approaching mm. retirement. So I understand it's a different phase in your life at this point in time. Are you looking for more high cash flow type of properties to buy or you're changing your existing properties into high cash flow? Yeah, we're in the process of moving from growth to cash flow. So, we've got uh, investment properties in areas that are you know, generating, say, 10% uh, yield, which is really good. Because, that's really good. Yeah. Um, so, that that's the aim then when you, when you move from one to the other, you get high yield rather than growth. Okay. Well, I would love to dive into this a little bit more. For example, I know within a few other markets on average, and correct me if I'm wrong, aren't we averaging around between 4 to 6%? Yeah, I mean, it's lower in places like Sydney because of the high growth that's occurred mm. uh, because rental yield is a combination of, of rent and price. So, you know, it's the return you're getting on the amount of money you've paid for a property. Um, you can get higher yields, but what you've got to be careful of is that that yield is not caused by price falls but has actually been caused by demand for rental properties. So, it's a genuine rent yield caused by rent demand. Uh, there are places in Australia and some in Tasmania, for example, like Queenstown and Zeehan where the rental yield is, you know, where those reports you get that show the highest rental yield suburbs around Australia, they always appear in there. Um, but it's yield caused by the fact that prices have just been plummeting for years and um, the Median price, say in Queensland, is now seventy thousand dollars. You know, it, 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 so you can buy a house very cheaply, and the yield is is high, but no one wants to rent there. So, 
you'll, you'll end up with an empty property. Moving on to discuss Lindemann's personal journey, we hear about his early life and family on the east coast of Australia. I grew up in Sydney and when I was about 20 year old, uh, I met a girl from Melbourne and so naturally I, I had to move to Melbourne at that, that stage and then I, um, I spent about 15 years living in, in Melbourne. Oh wow, so you're originally from Sydney, went to Melbourne and now you're back in Sydney? That's right. And what about the girl you met in Melbourne? What happened there? Uh, we had a long and um, happy marriage, a couple of kids, and then we parted ways about uh, 10 years ago, So, but, uh, which is fairly fairly common these days, you know, marriages don't, don't last a lifetime, but, uh, you know, no regrets, it, it mm. was good and we, we had two kids and um, it was a nice experience, but... Mm. Um, you know, the reason I, I married at the age of 20 uh, was all the wrong reasons. So, so at what point did Lindemann begin his journey as a property investor? Well, it was almost immediately uh, at that time because what, what I discovered was that you could buy uh, old terrace houses in the inner suburbs of Melbourne for, you know, very inexpensive and then renovate them um, and and sell them for a lot more. And that was something in in Sydney at the time that already that had become a very fashionable thing to do, and places like Paddington and Balmain were mm. booming markets. But that hadn't happened yet in Melbourne, so I thought, let's buy an old terrace house, do it up, and uh, and sell it. And we did that, and it doubled in price in three years. So um, I was convinced, even at that early age, that property investment was, you know, the right way to go. Did you have any influences from your parents that inspired you to get into property? Probably the opposite. I think, um, <laughs> yeah, my parents grew up in, you know, after the depression and the and the, and the war, and they were very anti-debt. It was all about buy a house as soon as you can, pay it off as quickly as you can, don't get into debt. And had I known then what I know now about debt, you know, that there's good debt and bad debt. Um, and good debt is the sort of debt that gives you a return which is greater than what it costs for you to, you know, in, in interest. Um, bad debt is credit cards, personal loans, you know, that sort of thing where mm. it costs you money. So um, had I known then what I know now, I, I think I would have gone ahead and got into property investment in, in a much more um, ambitious way than what I did. So, yeah, they taught me something which was the opposite of what was actually, you know, the right thing to to teach. And I, I, I guess that took me a long time to learn. During that time, when you were in Melbourne, were you there for a particular job? I had a, a job with uh, what was in the PMG and became Telstra. <clears throat> and then while I was there, I completed my education. So, I got a postgraduate in, in marketing. Uh, that was over the years that I was in Melbourne. And... Um, so it was always I was always employed, and I was always virtually studying, you know, part time as well. So you've done marketing post grad degree, and you're working for Telstra. At which point did you move into becoming a property analyst? Right, that that was because of um, it was a, a long process. But the after that experience, the first house I bought, and uh, the fact that you know it had doubled in value, and I thought this is fantastic. I'm going to do it again. Um, the second house we bought, we did the same thing and then after three years we had to sell it but the market had changed and so uh, prices had gone down and we lost a lot of money on that second purchase 
And then I thought, well, hang on, I don't really understand how the market works at all. You know, in one case, I've made a lot of money. In the next, I've lost a lot. There's something going on here which I don't understand. And I really wanted to. I said, I want to be able to do what I did the first time over and over again. So I started, you know, reading every book I could find on on the property market and went to seminars and webinars and boot camps and, you know, workshops and so on. And although all the, the people I've, I've learned from taught me a lot, none of them could actually tell me how the market worked. And so it was about 1990 um, I joined the Australian Bureau of Statistics and at that point I decided, you know, that that was going to be my calling and I spent five years professionally researching the housing market with them and then I moved on to other data providers and um, in total about 15 years of research has elapsed since then. Wow. I mean, that is a great springboard to go into ABS because they have so much data that you could work off. But was that something that you were just curious to jump into? Yeah, you know, I saw the job advertised and I thought that's the one I want uh, and it was fantastic and I learned so much, not just about the housing market but how to analyse change. Um, they they have a thing called trend analysis which is where you look at trends and, and you can predict what's likely to happen by the way that uh, the trends are going. So I, I then adapted that to the housing market and said, does it work the same way? And I discovered that it does. And as long as you're looking at the right sets of numbers, you can make fairly accurate predictions as to which way the markets are likely to move. Lindemann shares some of the most important lessons he learned while working at the Australian Bureau of Statistics. When you're looking at areas where there's a lot of investors, um, and, and a good example of that would have been the you know the mining boom towns of a few years ago, like mm. um, Moorambar, Dysart, Emerald, and over in the west, Port Hedland and South Hedland, that the first indicator that something was wrong with those markets was way back in 2013, and that was the number of rental vacancies was starting to rise. And if you're an investor, you've got to have a tenant. And if you can't find tenants, of course, you can't make the repayments and you try and sell the property. So the whole thing goes goes bad. And that was one of the things I learned, that it's the rental vacancy trend in those sorts of markets that is the first early warning indicator that something could be wrong. And um, it was a very, very valuable lesson because a lot of people were still moving into those markets at that time. And I was advising anyone that... Um, you know, that I was associated with not to do that, uh, you know, and stay well away from them. And of course, they, they started collapsing as, as markets um, almost immediately after that, in, you know, because of the, the fact that there were too many investors and there were not enough um, renters. Jumping back into Lindemann's investment story, we learned how he bounced back after his second investment property turned out to be unsuccessful. Well, that, that was when I decided to, to really spend some time on. on learning how the market operated and that that took quite a bit of time. I didn't um, buy any other investment properties during that time because I didn't want to repeat the, uh, you know, the nasty experience of the second property. Mm. So I thought I'm not going to do this again until I really know what is going on and then uh, once I'd, I'd nutted that, then I started buying investment properties again with, um, with great success. You know, I, I bought a property in Mount Isa um, in 2011 and that was the in the next two years, the highest performing market in the whole of Queensland. So, you know, it was picks like that which enabled me to um, to 
claim this sort of record for accuracy that I'm, I'm renowned for. Linderman shares the details of his personal portfolio and how it's progressing. We're moving from growth to cash flow, mm-hmm. um, but we have properties in three states at the moment, Queensland, New South Wales and Tasmania. And they're all, all the ones in Tasmania are high cash flow properties. Yep. So money situated around, around Hobart in the ex-housing commission areas, which where you're getting about 7 8% yield. Um, and then <clears throat> ones in New South Wales um, in places like Cobar, which is now a mining town, but it's, it's um, according to our figures, it's, uh, you know, it, it's got good growth potential, but it's also delivering a very high yield. And then in Queensland, most of the properties there are in what we call tourist areas. So the, the demand is being sustained by the tourist industry and the number of people working in that industry. So places like Cairns, um, they've got a lot of a lot of people working in the tourist industry and that's in, increasing during because of the uh, Chinese uh, tourism market, which is booming. So, um, yeah, we've got properties in those areas as well. Mm-hmm. Did you sit down before you actually started building your portfolio of properties to decide what your goal was? Yeah, that that's um, as I said, I've, I've written two books on on how to invest in the market, and um, both of those explain this this process, the idea of leveraging, of getting as much growth as you can. So you're starting with little money of your own, but you you know you're borrowing a lot, but you've got to make sure you're buying in high growth potential areas and then swapping over to cash flow areas uh, as you get older. And um, so that that's the, you know, the model I've used and I've adopted myself. Okay. Maybe if you could just delve a little bit deeper and explain that process. So, you said you buy into high growth areas and assumably when these areas do grow, do you actually just draw out the equity or do you sell the properties to purchase high cash flow properties? That depends entirely. Tyrone on what the prediction is for that area. So it's not so much a matter of time, it's a matter of, of performance or likely performance. And we have a, a very simple technique we use to, to work that out and that's to compare the number of sales to the number of properties listed for sale. And um, this information again, is it's very easy to obtain. You, number of properties listed for sale, you go to realestate.com or, or uh, domain and look it up for any any suburb and it gives you a number that says there are 30 or 40 you know houses for sale then you look up in say your investment property magazine in the back that same suburb and see how many were sold over the last year and the amazing thing is that it took me two years to work this out that if the number sold in the last year is about the same as the number that you know people are trying to sell right now then that's what we call a neutral market and that means prices aren't moving. Mm. But as soon as that ratio changes, so if you've got more people wanting to buy, in other words, sales is, is higher than the number of properties listed for sale, then prices tend to, to go up. And if you've got more properties listed for sale than, than were sold over the last year, prices tend to go down. And it's a, a very, so that, you know, the greater the difference, the the greater prices are likely to be going up or down. And you can track that over time yourself. So you do it every once a month. And that tells you when the tipping point is reached where prices are not likely to be going up anymore. So that's what I do. And we look at um, the suburbs where we have properties or this is what we're doing when we're looking for growth. 
And when we realised that there was no more growth likely, we would then sell that property, you know, before the growth actually stopped. Oh. And then and find other areas where there was growth potential and, and buy in those areas. Now, you've got to be, when you do this, of course, you've got to be careful because the, the cost of, of selling a property is about 3 to 4% the value of that property. So, you know, you, you've got to pay agents, you've got to have the house staged, there's um, legal fees and so on. Uh, when you buy a property, it's about 4% of the price of, of the purchase price because you've got to pay stamp duty and you've got to pay some more contract fees, you've got to get an inspection done and so on. So you're losing about 8% every time you buy and sell. So unless you get 8% or more growth, you're going backwards. And the interesting thing about the property market is that the long-term average growth rate in the, in the market is about 8%. So you've got to find areas that are going to do better than the average performance rate. Mm-hmm. Right. So, there's a lot of people out there saying, don't sell, just buy and hold the properties and just let the equity grow. I'm leaning more towards that because I know I don't have to worry about those costs. Mm. And, um, you know, running at 8%. So, it means that unless you can find areas well, and you're sure of finding areas where there's higher growth than that and, you know, we're looking say 20-30% growth over the short term. Um, then you are better off just buying and holding because that 8% growth will mean that it, the property will double in value over about 11 years. So, you know, it can double every 11 years, which is great. So, that that's a good thing. But that's all you can expect to achieve in those sorts of, you know, most of the markets in Australia. Taking us back to his second purchase in unsuccessful investment, Linneman outlines where he went wrong and how we can avoid it. With the first property, it was pure luck. Um, it was in Hawthorne in, in Melbourne and I had been, I mean this may sound ridiculous but um, I was watching the AFL footy on TV in Sydney and this Hawthorne club, you know, playing really well and I thought, oh gee, they're a good club to follow. <laughs> and so when I moved to Melbourne, I said, I want to live near the Hawthorne football club, you know, that was it. Um, and it just so happened that that area was you know, had a lot of old terrace houses and uh, the market was about to to boom. But then when I bought the second house, I then thought, well, hang on now, if that, that worked. But in Sydney, I lived near the beach and I thought, well, it'd be nice to buy a house near the beach in Melbourne. And I think that'll have a lot of growth potential. So I bought this place um, around on the Bayside area near Mordialic. And um, unfortunately, the... Melbourne market is not like the city market at all and the the people don't live near the beach for the same reasons they might do in, in Sydney and it's a different market and so that growth just didn't didn't eventuate. In fact, it went, went backwards and so I was going on all the wrong things. I was buying on emotion, um, you know, using my heart instead of my head and as a result of that, I, uh, I lost heavily the second time around and it was a big lesson but... I didn't understand what I'd done wrong, you know, that until years later when I realised that's what I did. I bought using my head, sorry, my heart uh, and, and not, not my head. Just curious, has that market changed since then? I mean, markets change over time and it, it uh, recovered quite well and it's now a very, um, you know, popular area of Melbourne to, to live in. Um, but and, and the house we had is still there, by the way, but it's... it's um, Hawthorne still went up a lot more, you know, mm. if you compare the two, it, um, 
the average growth rate was about 10%, which is per annum, which is much better than, than Melbourne as a whole over that time. Coming up, Linderman and I move on to discuss the simple strategies which enable your success. As long as you invest in good areas with growth potential, you've got nothing to worry about because the property market has always improved over time. It's always gone up. We hear his valuable advice for first-time investors. There's a lot of uh, sharks, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing out there who pretend to be on your side. And what I always say is, well, have a look at their actual track performance. We discuss the latest market movements and what that means for you as an investor. At the moment, you might say the best growth potential areas in Australia, Hobart, Tasmania, the coastal areas where retirees are moving, that's got a lot of growth potential. But then there's a lot of Chinese tourists arriving and they're moving to you know, spend a few weeks in places like Cairns or Port Douglas. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Lindemann and I discussed the rising and falling of the market over the years and he remembers a time when things became clear to him and everything clicked into place. It was during the, the global financial crisis and a number of the um, major lenders, the big banks uh, came to us and said, we are concerned because we think that housing prices could fall. Um, and the problem with, with mortgage lenders is that if mortgages fall over, they tend to do so in the first year a lot of them anyway. So if people get past the first year, they're okay. So they were saying, can you tell us whether or not housing prices are likely to fall over the next year? And so I started studying the, the, what I call the indicators, you know, or the whole range of indicators like um, time on market and vendor discount rates and number of listings and average hold times and, you know, all of those things to try and work out if any of these could give give you an indication as to whether or not prices were likely to rise or fall in the short term. And that was when I discovered that the the two that can tell you that are listings and sales. And that's because the housing market is just like any other commodity, it it, obeys exactly the same rules. So it's like you go to an apple shop and there's hardly any apples, the price is going to be high. but if there's heaps because nobody wants them, they, they knock the price right down. And so it's the same with housing. If the demand is high, then prices go up. And if it's higher than the, than the supply, they'll go up even more. Uh, you know. But if it's there's too many people trying to sell and not enough wanting to buy, then, of course, prices will go the other way. And it was, that was the aha moment where I realised that you can predict the future by using those two sets of numbers. Yeah, it's like reading into a crystal ball because it helps you determine where to buy and where to invest. So, tell me a little bit more about why markets do change. Well, it's for that, that simple reason, um, supply and demand. So, it, if you've got a mining town and the mine closes and people leave, nobody wants to live there, then the supply is suddenly going to be much higher than the demand and prices will fall. Mm. Whereas if you live in a market where people want to buy properties for whatever reason, then and there's a shortage of them, then then prices will go up. So it, it's the only complication is the fact that you've got two types of markets: rental markets and owner-occupier markets. But 
um, as long as you're aware of which one you're operating in, then um, you can use you know things like the rental vacancies in in markets where there's a lot of investors and renters, and you can use the sales and listings in all markets because that'll give you a really good indication as to what the immediate future holds. Great, great. Let's take an example such as the Sydney market, say in the last 10 years or so. We hadn't seen much growth up until about 2011 to 2012. I think that's when it actually started seeing prices just double. I'm always curious, why was the demand driven up so much? They doubled between 2000 and 2002. Yep. Uh, the growth stopped in 2003, went backwards slightly. Yes. And then nothing for 10 years until late 2012, they started going up again. And um, the very first part of, of um, Sydney where that occurred was around the Blacktown area. And we picked that up. We suddenly saw, hang on, the number of properties on the market is dropping dramatically here. And it's getting to, you know, that ratio is starting to get to the point where prices are going to start going up. And so we we predicted the, the, the not a boom, but the prices would go up in Sydney. And um, people laughed at us, you know, and said, well, that's ridiculous. They haven't gone up for 10 years. And I said, well, this is how the market works. And, and this is, in answer to your question, um, it doesn't go up regularly. When you look at that 8% average growth, there are long periods of time where there's no growth and then suddenly it shoots up and doubles in a few years and then you get a long period of time with no growth again. Mm. So when you look at what Sydney's done over the last 10 years, that growth rate is right on 8%. Um, Melbourne's about the same. So both these markets are actually now performing at the long-term growth rate. So they're not housing bubbles or anything to worry about unless, of course, the growth keeps on going, then I think I'd be getting a bit worried. But right now, they're right where they should be based on, on the long-term performance. I guess you could sort of predict that market by saying, look, we won't be investing for 10 years. Wait till it gets to that point where you compare the listings and sales. And at that point, you could probably jump in because there's still like two or three years run to be able to ride that growth. Exactly. <laughs> That's, um, that when after Sydney, you know, boomed and Melbourne sort of boomed, and a lot of experts started saying, oh, Brisbane will be next because it always follows Sydney and mm. Melbourne. And um, and I said, no, it, it won't be next because that, that ratio of demand to supply is not there. There's not enough demand and there's too much supply. And we had a situation in Brisbane where all the um, construction workers from the mining towns were moving back to Brisbane and building houses everywhere. So all the outskirts of Brisbane, there's new housing developments, and that was having a, a down effect on on prices because there were just too many being built. So I said, I don't think that Brisbane's going to be the next boom city at all. Um, and then people said, well, what do you think it'll be? And I looked at Hobart and I said, I think it'll be Hobart because that demand there was rising dramatically because of the fact that prices were very cheap, rents were high, and a lot of people were retiring there, investors were moving in, and of course... You know, Hobart's been the second best performer over the last year. So, you know, that prediction came true. But when Brisbane goes, it'll be when people least expect it. They'll give up on Brisbane. And then suddenly, um, when that ratio moves, suddenly then Brisbane could be the next booming city. Lindemann shares some interesting insights around the Brisbane market, despite the media predicting the opposite. So, what's got him excited about the market? Um, well, I think that what excites me is that there's always areas of potential. 
uh, you know, people say, oh, we can't afford to to invest in Sydney and we can't afford to invest in Melbourne. It's too dear. And I, I say, but there's always then what when there's growth in one area, it produces the opportunity for growth in others. And a good example of that is the what we call the ripple effect, where that high growth in Sydney is now moving outwards. People, you know, over 50 are selling their homes because they've doubled in, in price in the last few years. Mm. And and then they're moving up the coast or down the coast and, and buying properties for a quarter of that price and using the rest as a, a sort of a piggy bank for the future. Um, so that excites me because I can see a lot of growth occurring right now in areas north and south of Sydney, and I think that'll continue um, for some years. So there's a lot of opportunity, and people shouldn't say, well, I, I can't afford to invest in Sydney. My view is, well, don't, because you don't want to invest in a city that's already had three years of growth. Go to an area where there hasn't been any, but there's potential for that growth to occur. In the ever-adapting world of property, things can get pretty challenging. Lindemann and I move on to discuss the mindset required to become a successful and resilient investor. I think the the greatest obstacle that uh, first-time investors have is that they, they sort of go into this world of uncertainty and you know, property is probably the biggest investment they'll ever make in their lives. And so they think, wow, this is a lot of money I'm, I'm putting on the line here and if I get it wrong, it could affect you know my future f- for a long, long time. And, and there's lots of stories out there about people who have lost a lot of money and it, it's you know, almost ruined their lives because they've made bad decisions. So I think that the obstacles that, that people have to face is this, you know, coming to grips with the uncertainty and the, the fact that um, it can hold you back. So I always say to people who are in that position, I said, you know, as long as you invest in good areas with growth potential, you've got nothing to worry about because the property market has always improved over time. It's always gone up and it always will because there's more people who want to buy than what there are properties available. So, you know, that that's just the way it is. Don't worry. Just be careful about where you invest and, and the type of property you buy. Lindemann shares the earlier parts of his journey, which helped him in becoming the renowned market analyst that he is today. One thing I did when I was uh, researching the market, I looked at a number of studies that had been done over the the way the market performs. And there was one uh, really interesting study which was conducted. That this this um, a Dutch professor, he researched the performance of houses in one street. It was along a canal in Amsterdam called the Herengracht Canal. And those houses hadn't changed in 400 years. They were the same houses. So he analysed the changes in price that had occurred over 400 years. And um, that was where he first he came up with the idea that it's all about supply and demand. As long as the demand for these houses was higher than the number there were, prices went up and if the demand fell away, they went down. And there's been a number of other experts that have done similar long-term studies on the performance of the housing market. And they all say it performs in accordance with the laws of supply and demand. And so I think, you know, rather than any particular mentor, it was more using the resources of, uh, you know, people that had written um, PhDs and so on on this subject <laughs> to to u- use their, their research in this way and then to say, well, now how can I convert this information into a form that investors can make use of? And, and that was... The, um, 
the idea of, of looking at the ratio of supply to demand um, in, a, in a very simple way that, that gave you the power of all that research that had been conducted over hundreds of years of property market performance and put that into a form that you could use yourself. Well, for us people who are time poor, and I'm sure there are a lot of us out there who are listening to this podcast, you've got so much research that you can access but don't have the time to see through all of it. What would you suggest? Well, I'd, I'd say if you, if you rely on, on genuine experts in the market, you know, that have done all the work for you, um, that's the best thing you can do. And, and the problem here is, of course, that it's an unregulated market. There's a lot of uh, sharks, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing out there who pretend to be on your side. And what I always say is, well, have a look at their actual track performance. So these days, it's very hard for people to to hide. You can Google anyone, and I welcome you to Google my name, John Linderman, um, and see what comes up, you know, what I predicted and what actually happened. Because some of these people, you'll find they've been investigated by ASIC and, and trade practices and so on, and yet they're claiming to be on your side. And there's other people who will also claim to be on your side, and they're really, um, you know, sellers' agents masquerading as, as buyers' agents, so they've got their own hidden agendas. So I'd say do your research on the actual person giving the information and their track record and their bona fides because that's um, going to stand you in good stead. Linderman shares another piece of advice which has positively impacted him in his own journey. Well, I think the idea that uh, there's good debt and bad debt, um, which which comes from um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the book, um, because that for the first time I realised that, that there was debt was different depending on what you did with the money, you know. Um, so if you, if you get a credit card and max it out and you're paying off the monthly repayments, that's bad debt. You know, it's costing you money all the time. And what you bought with that probably doesn't generate any income. But if you borrow money to buy property and assuming that property goes goes up in price or returns more in rent than what you pay for the interest, then that's good debt. And I think that that was really the best advice I ever received, that there is a distinction and sooner investors realise that that's, there is good debt and they need to be able to use it properly, um, that, that that's the first step to you know success in property investment. Mm-hmm. I'd like to explore the steps that you've taken in your strategy. You've explained to us that the first stage is to buy high growth properties and then as you get towards your retirement, to actually be looking at high cash flow type of properties. Could you go into more details about that? And, well, I think that initially anyway, you let's say you're starting off as an investor first time, you might have $30,000 or something you know, as a deposit. Um, so, you, you're going to have to borrow say $120,000 to buy a house for $150,000. So, the first thing you need to to do is to say, well, I want to buy that $150,000 house in an area where it's going to go up as much as possible over the next few years, maximise that growth. Because let's say, it, like the Hawthorne house, the first one I bought, doubled in price in three years. If, if that happens, then your property is now worth 300000 So you pay back the bank one hundred and twenty, and you, you've lost your 10% um, for costs of buy, hold and sell costs, but you end up with about $130,000 instead of your initial 30000 So you've suddenly made $100,000. 
and then you do that again. And so I think they're the steps is to keep focused on that goal of I'm going for growth and I'm going to find areas with high growth potential. Mm. That's that's what I did and I discovered ways of finding those sorts of areas um, and then and th- they're no secrets either if you'd like to know what, what those uh, secrets are to finding those steps. Well, of course, you can read my books or uh, past articles in various <laughs> magazines you yes. know, because I, I make it quite available to everybody um, how you can do this. But it's consistency is is the the real the, the main aim in all of this to be consistent and not to lose track of what what you want to achieve. Having a wealth of property knowledge at his disposal, Linderman is not shy about spreading that knowledge in the hopes that the average investor can become a success. I ask him what he's got to say about diversifying your portfolio. Well, I definitely think you should spread your risk, but um, I've had people come up to me and say, I've got a balanced portfolio and I say, what do you mean by that? And they say, well, one-third in commodities, one-third in shares and one-third in housing. And I say, well, that's not balanced at all um, because it should all be in housing because housing will give you the best you know, returns as long as you buy in the right areas. So then other people say, oh, well, I've got a balanced housing portfolio. I've got two properties in Queensland, two in WA and two in South Australia. They said, but that's not balanced either because all you're doing is, is, you know, they could be the same types of markets in each state. So the idea of, of minimising your risk is to buy in different types of markets, not different uh, states or, or whatever. So at the moment, you might say the best growth potential areas in Australia, Hobart, Tasmania, the coastal areas where retirees are moving, that's got a lot of growth potential. But then there's a lot of Chinese tourists arriving and they're moving to you know, spend a few weeks in places like Cairns or Port Douglas. So you think, well, I could buy a property there and then um, do very well out of that as well. Or, or say the Whitsundays or even you know the Gold Coast in certain parts. So depending on the type of market, you're going to get a good result. So th- these are the way in which I say you should you know, minimise the risk is by um, going for areas where the growth is is coming from a particular type of buyer and then if one doesn't work, the other will, but it could well be that they'll both, both go and one's not going to cancel out the other. So, you could say in Sydney that probably would be different markets. You can say invest in the retirement market, another could be student accommodation and so forth. Is that what you mean? Um, yeah, there's actually probably about six different markets in, in any city um, and if you look at the rental market, you'll find there's the young people that leave home for the first time and they set up uh, as singles, couples or group households, they rent and they'll you know, live in, in certain inner urban areas in, in new apartments so you get high rent demand for those. Um, then you've got overseas arrivals who, who need to rent for a couple of years and they'll go out to the more um, cost affordable areas where there's work and public transport like Burwood and Strathfield and Parramatta. So different market again. And then you've got what I call opportunity seeker renters, which are your students uh, in, in capital cities who will live near universities. And you've got out of Sydney, whole towns like um, Armadale is a good example, where 25% of the people living in Armadale are the work in education or our students themselves. 
and so the rent demand, you know, generated by that is is huge. So there's um, those rental markets, and then the owner occupier markets. You've got first home buyers, you've got upgraders, and then you've got retirees. So looking at which areas has got the most potential for one or more of those types of uh, buyers or renters is going to get you the best results. Having shared some valuable market insights, Linneman goes on to share some of the personal habits which contribute to his success in the industry. I think um, consistent analysis is the most important thing. So even for existing properties, keeping track of those, you know, the number of listings, the number of sales, rental vacancies, what are prices doing, what are the neighbouring areas doing, those, you know, habits in continuing to do that um, are essential. And there are many, many investors who will buy a property and they just sort of, you know, let it go and just not worry about it. Um, and then suddenly they'll say, oh, I should have sold a year ago. You know, prices have plummeted, it's too late because they weren't tracking those um, those trends and so that that's I think is the most important habit is to be consistent and maintain an ethic it says every Saturday morning for half an hour I'll just track how my properties are going or areas that I'm interested in uh, so I know where I'm going to buy next and uh, I think that's a, a large part of anyone's success. Hoping that we might benefit from his research, Lindemann suggests that anyone listening should read his books. My first book was published by Wiley's in 2011. It was called Mastering the Australian Housing Market and you can buy that um, as an e-book or online. I, it's not no longer in print um, but the second book which is called Unlocking the Property Market was published by Wiley's last year and uh, that that's still available in bookstores or you can buy that on, online as well. So um, they're the two books that summarise all of the the methodologies and principles that I've um, been able to to you know, sort of discuss with you in the course of these um, interviews, and what they do is they explain exactly how you can go about doing the things that I did and I've learnt will will give you the best possible results. You definitely walk your talk. In general, I've been very very accurate. We've had a lot of people. Um, you know, I won't say that. Every prediction has, has resulted in a doubling in prices, mm. but we've had situations we predicted hay, which is in southern New South Wales as a, as a boom area. Um, prices doubled in nine months there, and uh, another one was buried in South Australia, where we said the you know the drought's over and prices are going to escalate, and um, we had people buying properties there, which doubled just over a year. So it is possible, and and the book will help you, or the books. Um, will help you find those areas. And how does it apply when time passes because information becomes outdated? Um, Unlocking the property market was only published last year. Mm-hmm. So, that's fairly, it's not five or six years old. It's mm-hmm. quite recent um, and it's a lot of that information is updated information from what was in the, the earlier book but I still get when I do presentations um, you know, around Australia and I get people coming up to me with the first book, Mastering the Australian Housing Market, and say, oh, John, can you, you know, autograph this for me? And it's all dog-eared and falling to bits. And they say, well, we still use it. It still maintains its relevance. So I think that the principles of housing market investment don't change. And whereas, you know, mining booms may come and go and, and, and different um, interest rates may go up and down, the principles that guide all these things don't change. And so the books are both still quite relevant. 
Thank you to John Lindemann, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more about his journey and get a copy of the episode guide on the website, head over to propertyinvestory.com forward slash guide. This guide will give you the inside scoop on the little gold nuggets of wisdom all our guests share from their backstory and their overall strategies and philosophies. Plus, you'll get a copy of the advice broken down and shared in a quick and easy to consume format. Just head over to propertyinvestory.com forward slash guide and download it today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.